Uh, the other night, I was in a group that was gathering to discuss specifically issues around the issue of racial equity and how we could be better engaged in trying to make sure that we live in a more racially equal society, how we as a neighborhood can continue to try to get better about finding equity in the things that we do and the ways that we act. And in that group, we had asked three very um, simple questions. The first question was, who are you? The second question was, what do you do? And the third question was, why does racial equity matter to you? Now, I was uh, stuck in a little bit of a concerning place in as much as the answers to my question were, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm the pastor of a church, and it matters to me because I believe in the image of God and all people. And I thought that was a pretty good answer. And my concern with those answers is that I think those sound really good. And I'm guessing most of you were like, oh, yes, very well done, Pastor. Very good answers. But I was also trying to think about the people around me. There were literally people in the circle who would ask the question, who are you? One of their descriptor words was atheist. So obviously they're coming at it from a pretty different perspective than I am. And I immediately started to consider, what what all is this going to mean? Like, how are we perceiving things? Is it possible there might be some disgust from them as I say, Christian, pastor, image of God? Do those words mean the same things to them? Or are they going to go, ugh, here we go again. Here is another pastor. Here's another Christian getting all high and mighty talking about how wonderful their faith is. But in reality, it's just not all that it's chalked up to be. And so I felt that inherent stress in my life. And the reality is, for many of us, that tension between what we would like the word Christian or Jesus or God to mean and what it actually means to the culture is a difficult tension for us to handle. In fact, some of us in our more deeper, darker moments will acknowledge that we even wonder ourselves Why is it that we're so not what we're supposed to be? Why is there so much of a gap between our rhetoric and our practice? And there's a couple ways this can look. Um, Brent, if you go to the slide with the two guys with the faces, um, there's a hypocrisy angle. People say the problem with you Christians is that you say you have these values, but then you don't live that way. You say these things are important to you, but you don't live it out. You say you care about morality and ethics, but then you live just as immorally as anyone else. You claim that you follow this Jesus that loves peace and and kindness and love, but then you're hateful and you're mean and you're nasty. And again, when we're honest, sometimes we feel that tension. Man, I read my Bible and I know what the preacher said I'm supposed to be like, but I don't live that way. Why is there such a disagreement between what I say I think and what I actually think? And so there's hypocrisy. Then there's the issue of apathy, which is the issue of we say that we care about something, but then we do nothing about it. The society at large would say, yeah, you Christians are always saying you care about this, but then the church doesn't make any difference. You always say, you know, you care about kids and you care about, you know, young people. Why are there still so many kids in orphanages? Why are there so many people that are not adopted? 
who need adoption. I saw there's a stat that's crazy that if every church in America would have one family adopt one child, there would be no orphans in the entire country. That's not every family. It's one family in every church. We'd be done. We could, we could finish it. We could be done by Friday, right? <laughs> and people go, but instead, you're sitting like Garfield on the couch, like, oh man, it's so bad we got orphans. I wish we could do something about it. And there's an apathy between what you claim you believe and what you're actually doing, how you're actually living. And then there's the critique about our peace. The idea that, you know what? You guys are just as anxious as everybody else. <laughs> you go, oh, you should come to church. It'll make you feel better. It doesn't make you feel better. I've seen how you live. You're going around just as messed up as everybody else is. And here you are saying that if I go to church, it's going to be the save-all, cure-all for your life. But then it's not a save-all, cure-all for you. You're just as sad as I am. You're just as overwhelmed by life as I am. You're just as messed up as I am. What is going on? And when we hear it from the outside, our backs get up a little bit. We're like, well, that's not fair. And we kind of go into a bluster. But then we go home and we go, yeah, how come the life that I'm trying to live and the life I see in Scripture is just so flatly different than the life I'm actually experiencing? And that dissonance honestly erodes our faith. Why is this happening? As we, uh, Bruce and I are, you know, doing sermon planning together now as we get ready for what's coming. And we talked a little bit about our upcoming sermon series. And we feel like we have an idea about where to approach this subject. First, I want to tell you a story from Acts 19. This is a silly little story. It may not feel connected. I promise we'll bring it around if you stay with me for a minute. Acts 19 verse 1. When Apollos, he's a teacher in the New Testament, was at Corinth, Paul, who I think most of you know, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, guy who preaches a lot of good sermons, took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus, a town that's in Turkey. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, well, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, and that is in, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. The goofy old story. Basically, we hear there's these disciples who only knew John the Baptist. The best we can tell is they were in the area of Israel and they were uh, met John the Baptist. They sort of became believers in that movement. And then they left before Jesus started preaching. And so they're going around doing a lot of the things that Jesus' disciples do, but they don't have the same thing. And there's kind of this, um, this moment where Paul goes, wait a minute, what's up here? And it's, it's, it's frustrating because it's hidden. The text is not real clear. But apparently Paul showed up in the town and goes, see, these guys are us, but they're not us. Like they're in our group. They're kind of with us. They believe basically what we believe. But man, it is just a real sad, impotent version of what we believe. There's something missing. And Paul's trying to put his finger on like, why are these guys so messed up? That's not what the text says. I'm adding a little something there, right? 
And what happens is he goes, well, wait a second. You, you guys have got the Holy Spirit, right? And they go, hold on, I've never even heard of that. Now, first of all, if you're reading your Hebrew Bible, you should have some concept of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, they're like, yeah, no, we don't, we, we don't know what that is. We don't know how that works. And Paul goes, oh, okay. That's why you're disciples. You're still followers of Jesus, but you're doing it in a way where you're hitting your head against a wall all day long. You're doing it in a way that's messy and dark and complicated, and it feels like you're getting nowhere. It's because you're doing it, but you're doing it without the Spirit of God. And I think that that's something that happens to a lot of us. As Bruce and I talked, we said, is it possible there are a lot of Christians in our church who are trying really hard to live the right kind of life, to be the right kind of person, to be transformed by God, and they just feel stuck because they don't have the Spirit moving in their lives, because they're not walking by the Spirit. Uh, A couple ways to think about this. One would be, uh, has your... um, power steering ever gone out in your car? Maybe you've had this experience. Maybe you don't know. If you're not a car person, your wheel should not turn as easily as it does to drive. There's a mechanical thing in your car called power steering that you do a little bit of movement and it moves this giant axle. I don't know if it moves the axle. Don't get me on that. You know what I'm saying? Basically, it makes the tires move, right? And what happens is when your power steering goes out, all of a sudden, you feel like a captain on one of those boats trying to get the car to turn, right? You're like, oh. It takes a lot of work. That is living the Christian life without the Holy Spirit in your life. Is driving without the power steering. Put it another way, maybe um, think of someone in the middle of an ocean in a rowboat. Okay, this is the most frustrating, futile thing you could possibly be stuck in. Because there's not enough rows in your arms to get you to land. And so you can paddle, 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 paddle all day. You can work yourself crazy. And the next day you're, you know, the... the it looks exactly... Yes, yeah, so it's the same place. You got drifted right back to where you came in from. It's just a mess. And that is the way so many of us are living our lives. We are in a boat and we are working our arms off trying to paddle to land. And life in the spirit is more like the sail ship, right? You have the beautiful sail up. And the spirit is that wind. And that's a very biblical metaphor. The spirit is a a wind that blows you to where you need to go. It's the difference between like trying to create all the momentum yourself and allowing God to push you and move you. When we live in the spirit, instead of quenching the spirit, our faith will move us away from that hypocrisy and that faithfulness to faithfulness and away from apathy to service and away from anxiety to peace. What is that missing piece that our friends see and that we see in our faith? It is often that we are not listening to the spirit of God. We are literally shortchanging the, the engine every time it tries to kick on. And then we're pushing it like Flintstone style with our feet. And then we're surprised that we're tired and we're exhausted and we're frustrated. So this is going to be our sermon series for the rest of the summer is how do you live in the spirit? How can you be the kind of Christian who is living in the beauty of God's power instead of in the futility of your own? And we're going to do that by walking through all these different passages and different parts of the scripture that talks about who the spirit is and what the Spirit does and what He's like and how He works and all of those kinds of things. And the good news for us today, for when we feel stuck, 
when everything feels messy and messed up and not what we want it to be, is that the Spirit is a creator. The Spirit is an artist. Uh, who can, off top their head, I'm going to give you a Bible quiz. I know some of you probably hate this. Who can tell me how long it takes before the Holy Spirit arrives in the Bible? Any guesses? Yeah. No, no. How far into the Bible? Any guesses? What? Isn't that in like the New Testament? Two verses. <laughs> Two verses is how long it takes the Bible to get. Let's go Genesis 1. This is the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The Spirit is there at the very beginning. Uh, Brendan, if you go to the next slide. It's, uh, there's this kind of weirdness here that's hard for us. You were probably taught somewhere, particularly if you have any Christian education, that God created the world out of nothing. We use this phrase that he created the world ex nihilo which is a really fancy way to say out of nothing. Um, I I kind of believe that, but it's not in the Bible. Because Genesis 1 says God shows up and the Spirit of God is moving and there's this primordial deep. There's this chaotic, watery blech that is sitting in darkness and in chaos and in mess. And God looks at it and goes, oh, let's make something out. It's this really gorgeous image that God looks at all of that mess and he says, I'm going to clean that up. For the Hebrew mindset, creation is not so much about creating something new as it is organizing something. Um, I always find this will make some of you guys feel good and some of you guys won't like this. Going to the container store is a lot like what the Bible talks about creation. Okay, Creation is not about taking nothing and speaking it out. It's about taking the chaos... And separating it. So you see God dividing things out in the Bible. He's like, oh, we're going to take the ocean, and we're going to put it here. We're going to take the beach, and we're going to put it here. We're going to take the sky, we're going to lift it up here. We're going to take the ground, we're going to put it down there. And it's just like God taking all of his toys and putting them in the proper bins. So that they're all nice and organized, and they're all put together. This is what creation looks like. And the beauty of creation in the Bible is that God takes the order and the mess and the stuff that doesn't work and he makes it so it can work. My kids are filthy messy. Annie was babysitting the other night. She can tell you, they're messy. And yesterday, Fran helped them clean their rooms. And now they're so excited to be in their room, right? Now, if you've had a kid, you've experienced this. They don't want to be in their room. Oh, it's so messy. It's gross. You're like, I don't want to be in there either. It's a pigsty. <laughs> then you clean it. And they're like, whoa, my room is so cool when you can see the floor. Yes. But that's the life that comes out of taking chaos and mess and putting it together the way it's supposed to be. And the Bible tells us that is what the spirit does. The spirit is an artist that takes the mess and he cleans it up and he puts it in the right place. So that you can live and you can have a hospitable place to be. This may feel disconnected to some of you, but the next uh, thing that kind of the Spirit does as a creator is the Spirit helps build the tabernacle. 
If you guys do not remember, the tabernacle is like a tent for God. God's mobile home, I had a teacher call it, which sounds kind of weird to us. But it's the way the Israelites moved for a long time. They had this tent. They had to go up and then go down and go up and go down. It was a way to have a temple that could move with the people as they lived as nomads. And that temple is, again, a place that takes the mess and chaos of Egypt and it becomes a beautiful place. They take all of this plunder that was stolen from the Egyptians and they carefully take it and make it something artistic and beautiful. And the Spirit of God shows up in this passage. Uh, verse Exodus chapter 31, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel. That's probably not any of your baby name lists, right? A son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Ahasamach, and the tribe of Dan, to help him. Many of you did not know that arts and crafts are a gift of the Spirit, but it's very clear in this passage that they are. That the Creator Spirit moved and worked through these two men to kind of create the tabernacle. In fact, I have a picture. It's a crummy picture. This is the best the internet has, okay? If you put David or Jesus in a Google search, you get all sorts of beautiful images. You put in Bazalel, and this is what you get. We don't talk about it. But once again, the spirit moves to create something beautiful. To say, let's create, and again, it's on all about distinction. Here, it's the distinction between the holy and the profane, between God's space and our space. In the same way that God said the oceans will come this far and no further, they say this will be the presence of God and then no further. And so there's this beautiful creation. I know I'm skipping around a little, but there's one more story of creation that makes uh, that we're all probably familiar with, with the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit, we're told, is how Jesus is miraculously conceived in the Virgin Mary. Because the Holy Spirit can take the mess and chaos of life and create something new and something beautiful. I don't want us to be lost here in the fact that these things actually really go together. That the Spirit moved, and out of darkness came light. And the Spirit moved, and out of the chaos and the mess of Egypt came lampstands to light the tabernacle so they could experience the presence of God. And then that same Spirit brings the light that gives us all light, the, uh, Jesus Christ. In Mary. The Spirit has this, this role that He goes into the dark, messy, screwed up places and He goes, Let's create something new and something beautiful. And here's the thing I think is really exciting for us. Um, like I said, this is not blank canvas creation. Because here's the thing that would depress us, I think. If it's blank canvas creation, then we all would have to acknowledge we don't have a blank canvas. If the only way that God and the Spirit can create 
is for to start with something that's clean and perfect and good. I, I already made a mess on mine, right? I've already caused trouble. I've already done things I don't want to do. But that's not the way the Spirit creates. The way that the Spirit moves in the darkness to create the light. The way the Spirit moved in Bazalel and Aholiab to take this garbage and this treasure that was plundered from the Egyptians to make a beautiful temple. The same way he used non-existent biological material and formed the Son of God in a human womb. He takes stuff that isn't that great and turns it into something amazing. Uh, I love this image. You see this bird over here? I don't know if you like modern sculpture. I kind of like this. I think it looks kind of cool. Anyone have any idea what that's made out of? That looks like either bobby pin stable? No, not quite. So you go to Ikea, you buy yourself a piece of furniture, right? And it comes out and it goes, this 15,000 piece piece of furniture can all be put together with this one little L-shaped Allen wrench, right? <laughs> We've all bruised our knuckles, like trying to ratchet with it. That's all Ikea Allen wrenches. The whole thing is made out of that. And what a beautiful metaphor for what it's like with the Holy Spirit. He can take this little insignificant piece that we probably curse while we're using it and just create something beautiful and gorgeous and give new life to it. We started today acknowledging that we often feel like we are stuck. Whether it's the boat, the power steering, whatever you want to say, often we feel like we've got nowhere to go. And into that, the Spirit goes, listen, I can take that mess and I can reorganize it and reshape it and put it together so it can be a place where you can live and you can thrive. And instead of people looking at you and going, man, it's really peculiar you have all those values and you don't live them out. I can make it so that the wind is at your back so much you're like, slow down. We're going a little too fast, God. We just have to kind of seek the Lord's face so that we can live by the Spirit. That's what we're going to continue to do for the next, I don't know, 12 or 13 weeks as we look at all the different ways the Spirit moves in Scripture. Um, We're going to have a little time of reflection now. Seth and our team is going to uh, do a song asking the Holy Spirit to be active in our lives. This is a great time. If you, that's the last time. If you have questions, fill out those questions. If you have prayers, fill those out. If you just want to prayerfully kind of think about the sermon, that's great. But we'll do this song and then we'll go from there.